Section 8 of An Earthman on Venus by Ralph Milne Farley. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by M. Bradley Peters. An Earthman on Venus by Ralph Milne Farley. Chapter 8 The Conspiracy. Just as the sting was about to pierce my breast, I recognized the bee. It was the same one which had been my companion in the spider web, and which I had rescued. There was the leg stump and the scarred abdomen. What irony of fate that this bee should have now returned to kill me! Don't! I shrieked aloud. Was it for this that I saved you from the spider? And it almost seemed as though he heard me and understood me for he stayed his rapier in mid-air. Then he recognized me too. At least he must have done so, for in no other way can I explain his sudden clemency. Instead of finishing his stroke, the bee withdrew his sting, gazed intently on me for several seconds, and then flew heavily away. Once more my life was saved. When I had recovered my breath, I struggled weakly to my feet and looked about me. The plane was a hopeless wreck. The impelled Barputa was still in his place at the levers. The one who had jumped was lying crushed and silent nearby. I was alone in a small open spot in the woods. After ascertaining that the crushed Ant-Man was beyond all help, I started off in as nearly a straight direction as I could, lining up first one pair of trees and then another in order to keep from traveling in a circle. The absence of any direct sunlight made orientation very difficult for without any shadows to judge by, it was impossible to tell north from south or east from west. Again, as on my second day on this planet, I noticed the peculiar fauna of the woods, and especially the strange birds which seemed to fly in tandem pairs. Finally, as I passed through a small clearing, a pair flew near me, and to my surprise, I found that it was not a pair at all, but rather a single animal. In fact, it was not a bird at all, but rather a reptile of some sort resembling a lizard with a wing where each leg should be, a veritable flying snake about three feet long. As this peculiar winged creature fluttered near and saw me, it uttered a shrill squeak and rushed at my head. The squeak was answered in various directions, and almost immediately several more flying snakes began to converge upon me from all sides. Luckily for me, there was a stout stick lying close at hand, and seizing this I began to defend myself. More and more of the strange aerial snakes arrived, and soon I was surrounded by a swarm of them, all striving to strike at my head, regardless of my frantic attempts to beat them off. I was rapidly tiring from my efforts, when a diversion offered, in the form of a new enemy, a lavender-colored, hairless, cat-like beast about the size of a large dog, which bounded into the clearing with a blood-curdling scream. Forgotten were the flying snakes as I clambered into a tree, just barely in time to escape this new onslaught, and forgotten, apparently, was I by them for they scattered to the four winds of heaven, leaving me alone with the purple beast, which paced screaming beneath my tree. I felt perfectly safe where I sat, for the creature did not appear to be a climber, but its hideous howls were most annoying until I noticed that the noise came entirely from my headset. So I switched off the current, and instantly, all was silence. But even the silence and the comparative safety of the tree were not particularly pleasant. The beast was anything but pretty, resembling a mountain lion except that it was lavender-colored and hairless, with antennae and webbed feet. So this was the woofus, of which I had heard so much, 
the most dreaded carnivore on all of Poros. One of these, it was said, was easily a match for three or four antmen. So what chance had I, perched in my tree, if my captor chose to hang around until hunger and thirst should force me to descend? But this question was never answered, for, luckily for me, something else presently attracted the attention of the woofus, and it trotted off into the woods. I switched on my radio and heard its screams gradually fade in the distance. When all was silent again, I descended, picked up the line of trees which I had been following when I entered the clearing. Soon I came to another clearing. There in the center lay a crippled airplane, and beside it the dead body of a huge ant. It was my own plane. I had traveled in a circle after all. In despair, I sat down on the side of the airship. How was I ever going to get out of this woods? And then the fading daylight gave me a clue. To one side, the silver gray of the sky was darkening, while to the other, it was assuming a pinkish hue. I could now tell east from west, and, if I hurried, and if the way was not too far, I could follow a straight line out of the wood while it was still light. So off I set, due west toward the pink of the unseen setting sun. Just as the pink light finally died out before me and all became jet black on every hand, I reached a concrete road at last and sat down exhausted on its edge. I must have slept, for the next thing that I knew, I was flooded by a bright light, and then a kirkwall stopped beside me and I was hailed by a cheery, Yahoo! I struggled sleepily to my feet. Yahoo! I said. Whither? To Watusa, he replied. Can I accommodate you? You certainly can, said I, for I am from Watusa myself, and have just been in an airplane wreck which killed both my companions, two Bartutas of the Imperial Air Navy. Crawl in, then, said he. So I accepted his invitation, and promptly fell sound asleep again in the bottom of the Kirkwall, where my new host had the decency to let me lie undisturbed. In the morning, we stopped at a roadside tavern, where I was awakened for breakfast. The driver of the Kirkwall was a rich farmer ant, on the way to Watusa on government business from one of the southern provinces. He had heard of me and was very much interested in my recent adventures, and I, in turn, was glad to find that I could talk with him quite fluently. We spent the morning chatting pleasantly as we rode along, and stopped for lunch at another tavern, where we ate a particularly delectable mess of fried mashed purple grasshoppers, served with honey. In the afternoon, conversation lagged a bit, and finally, to kill time, my host undertook to teach me how to drive the Kirkwall. The control was not unlike that of an earth automobile, so I caught on readily enough, and in fact drove the machine for the last hour or so and into Watusa, which we reached just before supper time. There I bade farewell to the ant and proceeded at once to headquarters to report the loss of the plane to the Winko, or Admiral of the entire Air Navy. Then I returned to my quarters, where I bathed and changed, and had supper with Doggo, to whom I related the sad fate of his friends. Tabby was there and glad to see me, but I should not say see, for these pet buntloats of the ants are totally blind, being guided entirely by their sense of smell, which is very keen. They smell with their antennae, as well as hear, these two senses being commingled in much the same way as we are taught on earth to regard the two components of radio waves, namely electrostatic and electromagnetic. But enough of Tabby's methods of perception. Doggo informed me, to my joy, that the Coopian lady had been moved to quarters adjoining my own, and had expressed herself as no longer unfriendly toward me. The next morning, I called upon her. I had now made sufficient progress with the spoken language so that we were able to chat quite pleasantly. 
She had me tell my entire adventure since my arrival on the planet, and punctuated my narrative with many pretty oohs and ahs at the various points at which my life was endangered and spared. We parted very good friends, it seemed to me. At least, she no longer regarded me as a repulsive wild beast, which was some consolation and encouragement. In the succeeding days, we became better and better acquainted, she telling me a great deal about her planet, and I in turn telling her about my life on Earth. But I, warned by Doggo, never once suggested that she tell me who she was, and she on her part showed no inclination to do so. Doggo, at my insistence, made no report to headquarters that her hostility to me had ceased. Frequently, she and I dined together. Our favorite dish was a stew of Alta, the mushroom-like plant which the ant-men cultivate underground on beds of chopped tardon leaves. The secret of growing this plant had been carefully guarded by the Formians and has never been learned by the Kupians. It tastes much like chestnuts, only not so rich, and forms the chief part of ant diet, much like rice among the Japanese. All this time, I had seen nothing of my old enemy Satan. In fact, I had seen nothing of him since he had tried to kill me many months ago. I had dismissed him from my mind, and so was much surprised when one day he swaggered into my quarters in a particularly truculent mood. Doggo was with me at the time, and bristled up at the other's approach. It was plain that the two did not care for each other. How is your pet math lab from the planet Minoth? sneered Satan. Now to call a person a math lab is one of the worst insults that can be offered on the planet Poros. It is as bad to call a man a skunk, a sandless puppy, and a cur all at once in the United States, or a chameau in France. And although the insult was directed at me, yet it was spoken to my friend Doggo, and it was he who had been really insulted. Doggo kept his temper admirably, but answered the sneer with another sneer. You forget yourself to speak so to a superior officer. My only explanation is that you have been chewing the saffra root. The saffra is a peculiar narcotic plant, which is cultivated on poros both for its anesthetic qualities and also for use in much the same way as alcohol is employed on earth, so that Doggo had virtually accused Satan of being drunk, which was both a charitable way of explaining Satan's insubordinate language and a deadly insult in itself. Satan clicked his jaws in rage and hurled at Doggo the words, I'll get your number, to which Doggo calmly replied, I'll get yours. And to my surprise, the two rusted each other and started fighting, never before having seen a duel between two ant-men. I did not know then how common duels are, nor that they transcend all rank. The proper formality for challenging to a duel is to, as Satan had said, I'll get your number. And the proper formality for accepting the challenge is to speak as Doggo had spoken. The battle was a sort of combined wrestling bout and fencing match, the two huge creatures tumbling over and over on the floor, each trying to get his mandibles at the other's neck and each parrying with his own mandibles the thrust of the other. Finally, to my horror, Satan slipped by Doggo's guard and fastened his jaws on Doggo's throat. He could easily and instantly have severed Doggo's head, but he apparently preferred to hold him for a moment and gloat over his victim, and this delay gave me the opportunity to come out of my coma, seize a chair, and rush to Doggo's rescue. But, to my surprise, it was Doggo himself who ordered me back. This duel is to the death, he said, and it is not adequate for anyone to interfere. Satan turned his horrid eyes to me and remarked, Wait a few minutes until I finish your friend, and I will get your number too. Go to it, 
I replied in English, not then knowing the correct formalities, but being perfectly willing to try my chances again with my old enemy. What was that peculiar remark? asked Satan. Math lab language, or perchance the way that halfwits talk on Minos. Keeping my temper, I answered, What I said was for you to come and get my number if you can. This diversion proved unfortunate for Satan. He should have severed Doggo's head while he had him in his power. For, while his attention was distracted by his conversation with me, Doggo suddenly wrenched loose and with a snap rolled Satan's head upon the floor. Then Doggo shook himself, went to the door, and called for assistance. And shortly three ant soldiers entered, two of whom removed the dead body, and the third of whom brought a paint pot and brush, with which he proceeded to paint on Doggo's back, under Doggo's own number, and the string of smaller ones, the number which had been Satan's in life. So this was the meaning of the small numbers, and also of the formal words used in challenge and accepting the challenge to a duel. Doggo had got Satan's number in truth, and now, so far as I knew, I had no enemy on all Poros. A few days later, in one of the corridors, I ran across the first male Kupian whom I had ever seen at Watusa. He was even handsomer than the Kupians whom I had met at the University of Muni. In fact, he was the most handsome Kupian man that I had ever seen, either before or since. He had curly chestnut hair, a straight nose, and regal features and bearing. But he seemed furtive and in a great hurry. Dragging me into a nearby room, he closed the curtains. Place your antennae close to mine, he cautioned, and radiate very softly. This is a matter of life and death to one who is very dear to both of us. The beautiful Cupian, I gasped. The very same, he replied. The Princess Lilla, daughter of King Ku of Cupia, illegally detained as a prisoner by the Formians. So that was why her identity was sealed. And who are you? I asked. I am her unhappy cousin, Yuri, next in succession to the throne of Cupia, he answered. Yes, I had heard of him from his younger brother, Prince Toron, who had been my assistant in the laboratories of Muni. Yuri continued. I have long loved the beautiful princess, but she ignored me, and so, blinded to all sense of right and wrong by my passion, I arranged with the Department of Eugenics at Muni to have her kidnapped into Formia for the purpose of forcing her to marry me and thus inaugurate a strain of perfect Cupians. I knew from Toron, of Yuri's great influence among the Antmen, due to his being the leader of the court party in Cupia, who believed in the most abject adherence to the Treaty of Muni. And I could well believe that a splendid race would spring from this pair, the two most perfect specimens of all Cupia. Yuri went on with his tale. All of Cupia turned upside down, searching for the princess. But of course... No searching but Cupians was possible in Formia, and the authorities of the latter country gave out no intimation that they knew the whereabouts of the princess. My implication in Lila's kidnapping was unknown to her, and so, on meeting me here at Watusa, she hailed me as a possible rescuer. I could restrain my indignation no longer. What duplicity! I shouted. I am tempted to try to get your number. But Yuri held up a restraining hand. Quiet, for Lila's sake, he implored, and do not blame you. For I am deserving of censure, but hear me out. Hear how I plan, with your aid, to atone for my crimes. Just as my suit was progressing admirably, you, Miles Cabot, arrived on this planet, and the plans of the Department of Eugenics abruptly changed from merely mating the two most beautiful Cupians to a really much more interesting experiment with a strange new breed. I shuddered and Yuri smiled. He went on. At first, I was jealous of you, and quite naturally so. So, 
Satan was a particularly loyal henchman of mine, and it was my influence that fostered and perpetrated his original hostility toward you. But now Satan is dead, so let the past stay gone. I no longer bear you any ill will. For I have seen that the Princess Lilla is even more averse to the stranger from Minos than she ever was to her devoted cousin. So now I am willing to take a chance on you as a rival, and enlist your support and assistance in my efforts to rescue our beloved princess from the Formians, and return her to her own country. All this he hurriedly told me in the room into which he had dragged me. Of course I was horrified at the part which he had played, but, appreciating his change of heart, I assured him that I was willing to help him rescue the princess. Then he outlined his plans. End of section 8